You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. All right. Where are you, uh, where are you coming to us from? You're in your car, it looks like. Yeah, I'm, uh, I ran a car in Salt Lake City this morning, and I'm driving to Moab to do a race uh, that starts, or a stage race that starts tomorrow. Oh, so you're really wedging this in for us, huh? I mean, I've got all day to drive. I just figured I'd, you know, I had a couple hours, so I figured I'd get on the road at least. Do you know about the stage race, Bracken? Do you know what race this is? I, I don't know what's going on out there. I do. We chatted a little bit. Oh, shoot. But you're going to have to get filled in. What race is this? Yeah, so it's uh it it's put on by Trans Rockies that they put on uh their like title race is a six day stage race in Colorado that I did a few years ago. And this is the first year they're doing a three day stage race in Moab. And I had a buddy doing it, so he convinced me to sign up this summer and now it's here. What are the uh what are the distances of, of the days? What are the the profiles look like <laughs> uh nothing mountainous definitely hilly but the uh the stages go something like 12 miles and then 29 and then back to like 14 or something so not not evenly hmm. spaced out you definitely have the you know the queen stage on the second day and what's the vert look like <sighs> honestly i haven't looked that close but it's like, you know, a few thousand feet. It's I, I know it's nothing crazy. So this isn't your A race or anything, if you don't know the course. <laughs> yeah, although I did just see that uh, Rob Carr is signed up to race, so that'll be pretty cool. Um, I kind of thought it would be low-key, but, you know, they, they end up getting some pretty good athletes coming out to their races, so... Um, but, yeah, this is, I'd say, my A race for... The this part of the year is uh, I'm doing a 50 miler in um, it's the Lake Sonoma 50 um, down in California, mm. and that's a qualifier for the world. You're trying to punch a ticket or something? Well, it's not not Western States, but it's a qualifier. It's not a Western States qualifier this year, but it's a qualifier for the World uh, Trail Championships, World Long Distance Mountain Range Championships in Austria. Yeah. So I. Especially given how much I've been running this winter, I think my odds are not great, but, you know, it'll be a fun race either way, and you never know unless you, you know, throw your hat in in there. Well, it seems like some of the best in the world uh, spend a lot of time on skis in the winter, and we're Strava friends, and all (laughs) I see is you out on the skis, so I think you'll be all right. My question is, how well, how much of the odd man out am I? Because I know you guys go back a ways, at least to like the the NBC days, Chad, I, um, I watched all those NBC races when I was first getting into the sport. Cause they were like hot and heavy in like 2000, what, 16, 15, 16. And I remember seeing you and be like, who's the guy that never gets any love on these things. He's always like flashing in before or <laughs> flashing afterwards. And they're like zooming past you to like Ryan Atkins or like Bracken's in the scene. And there's always you, who never gets to talk or got any love in the storylines. And for some reason, it sounds goofy, but you stuck out to me. I was like, who's this guy that just gets ignored constantly? And Bracken was in some of those races with you. So 
my question, I knew of you for a while. I was always oddly curious because it was like you were like the one person that just got slighted. But I know you guys go back a ways. So, like, how well do you guys know each other? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of a running joke that, that I never got any coverage on those NBC oh. uh, races. But, I, you know, <laughs> I, I just thought it was funny. It never bothered me. Um, but yeah, Brack and I go back. It bothered your mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> she, she'd get real aggro about it. She didn't enjoy the joke. No. Um, but yeah, you know, Brack and I go back about as far as I've raced, uh, Spartan. I think my second Spartan race, we battled in Las Vegas, went back and forth for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> that's the we Kirk. I, I think that was on a uh i've said this before yeah. <laughs> the track site. Uh, i heard chad coming <laughs> he had uh plastic bottomed spikes on <laughs> he i don't I, I don't he had to have been anticipating uh a dirt grass or sand course but we did a lot of rock scrambling and the plate on those spikes, it was in a literal gravel pit yeah. and i had a track spikes with a spike plate and it was so so uncomfortable but yeah brack and i went back and forth for a long time before he pulled away and i just thought like you know we should both hang it up we finished fourth and fifth that day and i thought we should both quit the sport but it was hobie hunter and cody maybe cody that were on the podium yeah (laughs) yeah we were kind of frustrated to get dropped Hunter was newish. Yeah. Cody was newish. Not that new. He'd already won a world title. But <laughs> that day, so this was at the time of the sport when people would just jump in. And you didn't know who they were, but you always could recognize were they a CrossFitter or were they a runner? And so this guy catches me as I hear him clacking up in his spikes. <laughs> I'm like, well, he's he's a runner. All I have to do is just wait a mile or two and he'll be gone. And so we'd hit a, a scramble or a descent and I'd I'd be like, all right, that's it, it's gone, or an obstacle. And then a half mile later, hear that clack, 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 clack coming up behind me again. And and Chad just made it longer into the race than the typical runner who jumped in. So I thought, ah, if this guy sticks around, he'll be he'll be a problem. And NBC apparently thought the same thing because they, they wanted no part of showing him in races. Uh, Brack and I went back and forth in a lot of races after that and got to pick each other's brains about training. I, I really enjoyed sitting in early days when no one had any idea how to train for, you know, Spartan races. Mm-mm. I feel like we were two of the more analytical brains trying to figure it out. And it was really fun, you know, sitting down before or after a race and, you know, trying to figure out how to train for this new thing that no one had really figured out yet. Mm-hmm. And at that time, Every course we saw was something new to us. So that first, the first two races I ran probably had a combined total of 200 feet of vert. So I trained my first six months doing one thing, and then I found Killington next. And after that, then it was something like California and then Vegas. And I'm sure same with Chad. We're running things we've never run before. So we get done and, all right. Now we just found out about this new thing that exists and this new obstacle or a heavy carry. And at the beginning, all the things we take for granted in the sport now had to be unearthed and then worked on. And Chad was one of the early innovators of how to how to get around doing that. Yeah, you weren't allowed on the course ahead of time. Um, but I remember trying to, I thought the secret 
sauce was just trying to replicate that feeling you'd get during a race of just that, you know, getting to an obstacle that would normally be so easy when you're fresh and having it be so hard. You know, the way that when your heart rate's 180 instead of doing 30 pull-ups, you can do four four pull-ups. So just trying to, the early days of trying to figure out that, you know, broken or compromised running and then, you know, being able to also handle the obstacles and how to mimic that in uh, in training. I feel like that's what a lot of, you know, your training plans have turned into. And I, I think they're really great. Yeah, a lot of trial and error. Well, um, from what I saw, you were you were an innovator with the spear throw because that's the other thing that stuck out to me on <laughs> camera was like, who's this guy throwing the spear throw like this? Like, what is this situation? But you always stuck it. It was like you used your what your left hand as a launching pad and you kind of shoved it with the palm of your other hand. It, I, I don't think anybody does that these days. It's like before high jumpers learned the Flosberry flop, they were like going over it in the scissor style. It was like Chad Trammell, Western roll, whatever Western roll. Yeah, like I always that always stood out to me too is the way you threw that spear. It was very noteworthy. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't really proud of that, but when I tried to throw it one handed, I just couldn't control the the pitch of it, and I'd always get the you know even if it was on target, the nose would be pointing up and it wouldn't stick. So I felt like I could just kind of guide it two handed. And didn't have the best percentage, but it was it was better than my my one-handed throw. But yeah, definitely a little embarrassing. I'm glad they didn't didn't focus on that too much. <laughs> the key with that, you know, as long as that you don't have to throw it hard, as long as that nose is pointing down when it when it hits, you're good. I don't know if I want to like uh, jump ahead here or not because there's like some some burning questions I have for you, Chad. Like, where'd you go and why? You just disappeared on us. You're like under the, uh, the on the Spartan race scene. You just dipped out. Uh, you're also like an under the radar kind of guy. Where suddenly, like, you don't really share your not that you need to, but like sharing your plans on social media, and then suddenly you're overseas dominating a 50k mount, or mountain race or like something. And it's like, oh, Chad won this thing, and who knows where? And I feel like you've been just hustling hard, and you got to be close to my age now too. I assume you're like mid late thirties. I don't know how old you are. How old? I better not be insulting you. I don't know, but you're giving it still. And so I have so many questions. Like, why'd you leave Spartan? I'm, I'm 20, 28. I'm very very insulted. Are you? Are, no, I'm I'm uh, 38. You knock it off, Chad. Anyways, so there's a lot I want to unpack here, but like I don't know. Should we start with the beginning? Should we get to know Chad here for a little bit? Because you got a unique story. You live in Alaska, all that stuff. You want to dive into that bracket and then get into the details? Yeah, we got to start early with Chad because he, he's one of these people that the people in Spartan basically know him as Spartan race, as a Spartan racer. But it was like a, an add on to his life that never fully like consumed him. So yeah, I, I don't think he's a like Hunter never ran a race until Spartan race. Chad was already, you know, what? 100 races 200 races deep into his career and now another 200 since so i think we got to go back to the beginning yeah um started you know pure runner early on um my parents met in college uh university of puget sound on the track and cross country team so had that running pedigree and you know, loved running growing up um 
And Where'd you grow up? I'm curious if Alaska, sorry to interrupt, if Alaska is a, a new thing or if, if that was an adult move. Yeah, Alaska was a move as an adult. Um, I didn't move there until right when I was getting into, actually after I got into Spartan. Um, I moved to Alaska in 2014, but I grew up in Washington State, um, Central Washington kind of desert area, um, but lots of good runners coming from Washington. So um, ran through high school, and despite running you know, 936 for the two mile as a sophomore, I only made it to state once in track, um, and, you know, but it was, it was definitely, you know, my sport and identity in, in high school. Is that more of a, a function of who you're running against, or did you kind of plateau as a sophomore? Because 936, two miles a sophomore, speaks right. to some, some real potential. Yeah, a little of both. Um, we just had a stacked region where we'd only have two people make it to state, and often it was the top two people in the state would go on. Um, but also, I, I ran 9.36 as a sophomore and only progressed to 9.34 as a senior. So definitely had some frustration in there with, you know, plateauing early um, and not having the progression in high school I I thought I would. What do you attribute that to? Uh, looking back, you know, I, I grew really late. Um, so just kind of going through a growth spurt that you know, in, in general is, is helpful for dudes, but I think it took a little while to, um, you know, to maintain being healthy through that. And, you know, probably there was some, you know, looking back, I never got blood tested, but probably a little anemia or something because it, it just didn't really make sense. And then once I got to college, kind of started progressing again, like I expected to. We're so polite. All right. I'm just making sure we're not cutting each other off. So you okay? So you grew up in Washington with a traditional running background, and I'm assuming then because you're heavy, heavy into trail racing these days still. So did you make that transition pretty quick? It, it, you must have because I mean, most collegiate runners find the roads, or they even still hop into some open meets, or they do something like that. But like. I don't know. It seems like maybe the trails happened pretty quick for you. My mistake in there? I didn't find them until, my goodness, I don't think I trail ran until like 15 years post-collegiately. Like, I just did the roads. That's what you did. But, like, that's not your case, obviously. You know, actually, Spartan racing was kind of the, the backdoor way into trail and mountain running for me. Um, I was just mainly road racing and running with the club team, doing cross country going to club nationals every year doing I, I enjoyed trail running but i didn't trail race a lot and with spartan race that kind of got me training and racing on the trails more and then really falling in love with that mm. that's funny how those of us like you myself who found ocr and then that gave us the love of mountain and trails it changes your perception of what a mountain is <laughs> and what a trail is because most college runners, and we'll get into your, your running in a bit, uh, they find their first trail and they're like, ooh, this is broken running. This is tricky. This is technical. And then they get a mountain race. Like, I, my ankles can't handle this. But you do two or three OCR races, and they, at the time, 2012, 13, 14, were putting you through 
probably the worst terrain you can find in running. And then you find a trail or an ultra mountain race and it feels tameish. And so your learning curve is just really shortened by getting that, like you said, that backdoor route into the trails. Absolutely. And between that and deciding to move to Alaska where it's just gnarly, gnarly mountain running everywhere. And that's the people don't road run. They're all, all mountain runners. So that also, you know, kind of helped out with that learning curve there. Mm-hmm. So what'd you do after high school? Uh, high school went to uh, Pepperdine down in California. It was a small D1 school, but only had, um, it was kind of interesting. They only had Division One cross country, but not a track team. So, you know, at the time I was jealous of my friends that were running three, you know, indoor, outdoor track and cross country and run all these fast times. But in retrospect, most of them are burned out now. So having <laughs> just half a year to be an athlete and half a year to be a, a college student and, you know, focus on classes a bit and stuff um, ended up being, I, I think I credit that for still getting after it and enjoying running as much as I do now. I'm curious about that, actually, because I got heavily recruited. I'm from Green Bay, Wisconsin, and I got heavily recruited by UW-Green Bay. It's like a 5,500-kid D1 school, and so they only had cross-country and not track, so it was the exact same setup. And they were going to give me a full ride and the whole deal, which is very uh, attractive, but I couldn't wrap my head around only doing it for, you know, what do you compete, three, four months out of the year in just cross-country? And I always wondered if I would ever reach my potential because of the ebb and flow of the seasons. Um, but it sounds like that worked out well for you. Like in that setup, did you were you encouraged to like jump into open track races or run road races, or was it like good luck, see you in eight months when the season starts up again? Like I never knew how that worked, and I didn't choose to go there because I wanted to run track, but. That was a very considered route by me. So what was your whole take on like the flow of the season with that setup? Yeah, it, um, we were encouraged to run open races in the spring, but hardly anyone did it. And we, you know, it was, uh, you know, kind of slapped together team that was, you know, Pepperdine's cross country team was there to give them enough sports to be a d1 school it wasn't the focus um so you know i came in and was mainly the number one runner as a freshman on the team which was kind of unique um but it was you know it kind of gave a good natural ebb and flow to the season where you could take some downtime in the spring i played on the club ultimate frisbee team in the spring and you know took 18 credits and um yeah, I, I honestly don't think I would have been able to finish college running three seasons a year in four years with the labs and stuff I had to take. I, I went to dental school afterwards, and um, yeah, just the the class load combined with running full time. I think you know that's the reason why most people redshirt and take a take a fifth year. Yeah, and I suppose even though you might have been allowed to jump into track meets, track's not a sport. That's really fun to jump into. You can jump into a cross race if you've just been running. You get lost in the mix of two or 300 people. Who cares? But jumping into a, like an indoor 5K or a mile or something, that's not a pleasant experience if you're not in track season, in track shape. 
Yeah, they didn't have uh, many indoor meets just because it was in Southern California, but you had outdoors starting in January, basically. Oh, yeah. And I ran two 5Ks throughout my whole college career and was and won 1,500 and wasn't very fit for any of them. Um, so definitely, you know, it would be nice to look back and have the, the PRs I'd have if I had run track for four years, but... Um, but like I said, I don't think it would be a good trade-off for the, the burnout that came for a lot of the, the three-season athletes. Mm-hmm. How did cross go for you? Uh, generally well. I, I improved every year. Um, ended up running 25 flat as a senior um, for 8K. Um, it was, but then every year since we were D1, we'd run regionals against Stanford's and you know a bunch of Olympic future or current <laughs> team members. And you'd get put in your place and, you know, know where you really stood. So, um, but it was fun competing within the conference. We had University of Portland there, who was a good team. And then a bunch of other kind of small, mediocre teams that could battle it out. So, um, top finish at conference was seventh, but I never cracked the top hundred at regionals. Who were some of the best runners you ran up against in those regional meets? Uh, Ryan Hall, probably. Um, that would count, yeah. Yeah. I got a photo of myself shoulder to shoulder. I'm in the, uh, we lined up next to him at a, a Notre Dame Invitational in college, and it's just so funny to think that I was right, I just, by dead luck, right next to him. And I think he beat me that day by like two and a half minutes, maybe maybe close to three in an bad. AK race. Like, <laughs> such a poser. It doesn't matter. Anyways, that'd be intimidating. <laughs> You beat him now. <laughs> Not at the bench press. <laughs> yeah, right. Not the bench press. His, his brother's back, though. So there's still a haul yeah. out there. Yeah, Brack and I were just texting about Chad Hall. Kirk, are you aware, Chad? Uh-uh. He was a pretty good young runner and then stopped competitive running for, I don't know how long. I felt like a decade. It might not have been that long, but he just came out and ran 212 and I think it was his re-debut. So we hadn't seen him in a long time. And he's also a footlocker national champion in high school for cross country. Well, and that's what I was going to say. I'd been on this footlocker kick about a month or two ago. And I remember Chad, I remember picking Chad out of the sidelines cheering his brother on. But that was early 2010s, maybe. Maybe even somewhere around that. And then he just disappeared, huh? Yeah, I don't, I don't know the story on it, but he just came back and ran 212. But then Chad sent me uh, a Strava screenshot. He did a vertical K at 15%. And he held, what did he hold? So he held... Seven and a half miles per hour? Seven? It was seven miles an hour. So like 843 pace. So it'd be, with the 15-15 challenge, it'd give you 1.75. But he held that and kept going for 36 minutes at that pace. <sighs> Screw that. So you basically did 175 times 2.5, 2. 2.3. 2. <laughs> I just discussed it. <laughs> We've been having such discussions about treadmill calibration because ours are always calibrated to make us feel slow. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. we got to calibrate that. I'm sure that's what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chad, I, a question I have for you after hearing you talk. Uh, I went to a small state school, University of Wisconsin Oshkosh. 
I chose school 100% based on athletics. And I'm glad I did. We were national champs there. It wasn't because of academics. Uh, But I have to imagine you choosing to go to a school with only a one-season sport like cross-country means that running didn't necessarily lead the way of your decision for school. Am I correct in saying that? Yes and no. You know, I really wanted to... You know, as as a sophomore running fast, I started thinking, I'm going to run for Stanford or some big school. And it was hard to let that Division One running dream die. So this was kind of one of my few Division One options to run. But it also was a good academic school, and I wanted to go to a small school and get out of Washington, try something different. So it was a, it was a combo of things. But, you know, I, I don't want to understate how, like, how important running was for me and how probably over focused I was on it. You know, it's, it's hard to balance. And I think we're, I know Brack and I are probably dealing with that now. It's, it's hard to succeed at something if you're not so hyper-focused to the point that's probably detrimental in your life. And that was probably the case with me in high school and college. So I definitely made that decision probably mainly based on running. What was the training like at Pepperdine? What were you guys doing volume-wise? How scripted were your off-seasons? What sort of theory were you guys following? Because I don't know anything about Pepperdine. Yeah, I mean, our our team was, like I said, came in and there was no one on the team running under 27 minutes for 8K. We had a coach who was a great, great guy but he was an 800 runner who ran in the pre-classic at one point, um, who was a Pepperdine grad, uh, 148 guy, but he wanted us to train like middle distance runners. And I wanted to train, run a hundred miles a week. So it was a lot of the team running, you know, a prescribed like 30 miles a week, whereas I ran 65 in high school. So, um, I do a lot of running on my own outside of the, to put volume in outside of the, hmm. you know, kind of middle distance focused workouts that our coach would give us. All right. I'm intrigued here. So, <laughs> did he work with you with that or did you take what he did and you just stacked volume on top or did you get to pull? Cause 30 miles a week in college means you're running at least three quality workouts, if not four. And they're going to be spicy, especially if he's a middle distance guy. So did you get to pull back on workouts and add volume or were you just doing this the best you saw fit? Uh, he was aware that I was running extra, but it wasn't a specialized plan for me. And he kind of thought I was running too much, but I've, I'm just a big volume guy. So it, I mean, honestly, training system-wise wasn't a great fit. And I'd get, definitely get smoked by some of the other teammates in the shorter distance workouts. But, you know, I'm I'm a big volume believer. And I knew when the races would come around that, that would give me the best shot. And it usually ended up with me being at least the top guy on the team. It's a tough system to apply to a cross country only Mm. school. (laughs) Yeah. I want to talk about something. I want to talk about this burnout thing you brought up with, um, I just want to, cause I think you're onto something there about, you know, college chews you up, spits you out the back end. If you're like a three, uh, sport athlete, that being cross country, indoor track and outdoor track. Um, by the time college kids get done, if they stick with it, they're pretty toast. And I'm trying to think of like, we had 24 people on my cross country team. 
and most of them did track as well. And I would have to say if maybe a quarter of them are still getting after it pretty hard today, I would say that might be a gross overestimation. Bracken, I don't know what your percentage might be. And I'm curious if, if you can think about the people you went to college with, Chad, if there if there is more people still getting after it, you know, 15 years later. Even just still running out of all my college teammates, I think it's like five or six. Just running at all. And that's that's two different universities. Yeah, I'd say there are a few more running because the other program I'm pretty familiar with is I went to dental school at University of Washington and had some a bunch of friends on the team. And that's they're not that's, too bad right now. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. It's fun to fun to follow their milers right now. Uh, just for the audience, they've twice this year had, I think, six? six guys, if not eight, break four in the same race in the mile. Uh, eight, but one isn't eligible until the spring. He's a grad guy that only has track left outdoor. Yeah, this last time it was all of them under 357 <laughs> or at 357 <laughs> or under. Um, but yeah, back to to the question. Um you know, I definitely a much higher percentage of the of the people who ran with me at Pepperdine are still running and still racing compared to my friends on the University of Washington team that was a you know serious three three season program. Yeah, that that's what I would expect because man, we got some, and it actually seems like the I'm just thinking of my teammates like the high performers, the ones who actually did pretty well. Um, ones who are maybe all American again, we were division three. Um, so it's a little easier to be all American at division three, but the high performers still seem to be getting after it in some capacity. Like they found success. They still realize they found success post-collegiately and they found an avenue for it. Um, but it's like everybody, like I was not one of our top, like our cross country guys. I was our seventh guy the last time I ran on the team. And for me, I was always like hungry to still like prove myself and it kept me on the hook. But for most guys, it seemed like the people around me, like the middle of the Packers, they all kind of like were like, screw this. Like, I'm, where's the carrot right now? So just the top, top performers seem to be still getting after it. But other than that, most guys got beer guts and are running 10-minute miles, which there's nothing wrong with that. But they used to be running 430s or 5s, right, out on the cross. It's just interesting. Yeah, you need something to keep you hungry, you know, something that didn't get fulfilled during that college time or, you know, like – they talk about in this book, the sports gene, some people are just sled dogs and they're, they'll run every, you know, they'll run for the rest of their life. And I, I think there's a little, a little of both of those little, you know, genetic desire to just get after it. But a lot of the time it's, you know, your college experience didn't give you everything you needed out of running. So that's why you're still getting after it. That's interesting. One thing I saw with our university in particular was the late bloomers left college fired up. And the people who were good in high school and good as freshman, sophomore, and plateaued left college really disliking running because every year a new incoming group started closing the gap and passing them. And so they, they as freshman, sophomore, they were top three on the team and were ready to take over the reins. And each year someone else took over the reins from them and they it, it was just like a, it kind of poisoned the well for them. Where in high school, you know, you didn't have it, but most of us had it where we got better each year. And then in college, we got better each year. It sounds like high school you didn't, but then in college, you got better each year. So you leave thinking, there's more on the table here. 
this running thing is kind of cool. It's just going to keep giving where some of those people come in and never, they, they spend their last three years of college running slower or not better. Yeah, that totally makes sense. That actually tracks, that tracks with my teammates for sure. Now that you say it. Yeah. And then they'd have this chip on their shoulder against the new young kids. <laughs> you get a couple of high, high level recruits in and the juniors and seniors actually didn't like how fast the new kids were. And it's, it's a, it's a tough setup. I guess the question is, is, is that the reason why you and I aren't jumping into my Spartan races these days, Brett, these bracket? Oh, let's get into that. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Because we used to jump in, in any condition coming off injury, missing blocks of training, not really caring. Well, all we have to do is beat one or two people. We'll at least make a little bit of money. Why not jump into it? And now everything's got to be perfect. And then there's still no guarantee that you're even top 10. Not to wedge this in there, but to wedge this in there. Did you just see the payouts for the 3K series? They just were announced. No, I didn't see the announcement. Uh So all these races. Your smirk says I'm not going to love it. (laughs) I think the sport's done. 1500 bucks for the winner, 1000 for second, and 500 for third, and then I think nothing after that. And that's for these big series races, for, for the series 3K races. 1500 1500 I think Dunzo after that. And then the overall series is five grand. It goes down to like two and then one, I think, for third place. I just don't think it's there, the money anyway. For, so it's the least it's ever been on either end. Oh, it's significantly lower for per race and overall series. Um, I just don't see people traveling. The best case scenario is you make your money back from your trip. Like, I don't know. I don't think people are going to do it. We don't need to dwell on that, but it just got released. I, well, I was um, setting this up and kind of dawdling. I, it just popped up in my feed. So not good. Not good. No, not, not great. You were talking about money or something. I don't know. Placement is what it was. <laughs> something like that. All right. So you were a mileage monster in college. Were you injured at all? high school or college you ran 65 a week in high school and then what were you up to in college 80 100 uh i ran 100 a week got to 100 a week my junior year and i think my second 100 mile week got a stress fracture in my tibia which has been my only Hmm. you know bone injury or and one of the few major injuries for uh my whole whole career running for you know going on 30 years now that's wild. What was that recovery like for you? Uh, it was, unfortunately, the eight weeks put me right at the end of the season. Um, I jumped in an open meet the week before conference, but had only been, um, I, I was just riding a bike for eight weeks and kept me pretty fit, but I decided not to not to suit up for that year and um, keep my eligibility. Um, I kind of had plans on trying to walk on for UW while in dental school freshman year or first year of dental school. Um, in retrospect, since that didn't happen, I, I kind of look back and wish I had just used that eligibility and raced off of my bike fitness and seen what happened. Hmm. So you have a year left. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I still have a year left. I think there's, a, there's a... I don't know. COVID rules changed a lot of things. <laughs> Get in the portal. <laughs> there was a guy in our conference uh, in college. He was 42. I'll never forget him. Jeff O'Neill. He was like a war vet, and he 
went to, um, I think, Superior. Anyways, he was 42. He was out there just hoofing it 42 as a freshman, I think, or something like that, and he was always iconic. So if he can do it at 42, you can do it at 38, wow. Chad. No problem. <laughs> uh-huh. So what did you? So what did you do then after college? So we see how where that went, and then um, what what'd you do after that? You obviously, you're a dentist now. I'm I'm assuming based on the dental school um, situation. So that probably took up a good bit of your time. Did you keep competing through dental school? Yeah. So during first year of dental school, I was like I said, trying to get onto that cross country team for University of Washington, and ended up running PRs in the 8K and ran um there's a club team in seattle called club northwest that um i basically ran with all through all through all through dental school it was really only first year they had time to get after it with them um so you know that's that was probably my most fit year actually um what'd you hit uh 24 43 for 8k and i ran one 5k where you know i was it was a super fast heat that I got into, and I came through two miles in nine twelve, which is by far a PR, and then ran like a five fourteen after that, and <laughs> ran fourteen fifty nine. So still my PR all the time way to run fourteen fifty nine in a very 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 ugly way. You, I thought you broke fifteen on the roads. Uh, not on a, not on a real oh, course like at 1440. least. Okay. I thought you had done a 5k on the roads and there was like a bridge involved and you went 1440. <laughs> I'm uh, Probably, but it not, I don't think it was a legit course. Well, I've told everyone I know that you're a 1440 <laughs> on the road. So that's on your PR now on the list. But yeah, then after dental school, I was, uh, just trying to, I was just kind of in that, uh, annual flow of kind of jumping in some road races and then trying to qualify for club nationals with the team club cross country nationals in December. And that's when I discovered obstacle racing. It was actually a non-Spartan race. It was uh, called the tough rhino mud run in Washington. All right. uh, just a tiny race that happened twice. Um, and I, I won that and then saw that Spartan Race was coming to town and had bigger prize money and watched Why would you show up to Tough Rhino? Like, why? Why do that? Like, why? What was the appeal? It was where I was living. It looked interesting. Um, you know, I, I thought of myself as somewhat athletic for a distance runner at the time. I was, you know, rock climbing, doing some jujitsu. Um, so, yeah, just show, and it was in town. It had an $800 first prize. Um, the first year they did it, they, uh, they, it was called tough rhino mud run, but they had all their, they tried to make their mud pits by pouring water, you know, a truckload of water into the sand in the desert. And it just all, you know, soaked into the ground and there was no mud at all. It it was dry within 15 minutes, but yeah, then showed up to, that went well. I the second year I did, I raced uh, Jacob Puzi, who's uh, Rivers Puzi's brother, and beat him. And then Jacob's was, still running, isn't? Oh he? yeah, he's getting after it still. Yeah, still an ultra runner. Yeah, then raced in Washougal and just kind of assumed that it was going to be the best 
track runners from Portland that showed up, and that's who I was going to be competing against, and got slapped in the face by Hobie pretty hard that day. As we all did. <laughs> and failed about four obstacles. And What year was that? I think 2012. I was curious if that was a series race, so it wasn't. It was just this random, unassuming, as Hunter says, chicken nugget with legs who beat you. <laughs> yeah, and then I, I definitely lost to some some big CrossFitters that you know were not fast, but were able to do the obstacles, and that's that was my first realization that just just running training wasn't gonna get the job done. So then I saw you down in Vegas. Vegas had to have been what four months after that. Yep, yep, that was my second race. I almost hung it up after Washougal, but decided to give it another go in Vegas. You know, I saw you from races from time to time after that, but then you got you got hooked up with uh, Atlas Race. Yeah. And that was this whole thing, but I came out to the first one, and in the parking lot you met me, and you're like, hey, I have a couple guys here, and they brought a couple friends, and it was Max King and John Riccardi, who had just been 8th and ninth at the olympic trial steeplechase and uh and, and you, then you had tahoma and a few other yeah. guys there so in, in this time when did you hook up with that crew yeah so i you know basically even though i didn't finish as high as i wanted in washougal or um vegas i i reached out to spartan because i you know they had like a 10 member pro team and i was beating seven of the guys it was like hey you know i i should be on this team probably um, and I got shut down and then, you know, got to know the Atlas race guys who were putting on this race and wanted a pro team. And I was like, man, I know a bunch of good runners who are pretty strong, who could probably beat most of these guys. So it was kind of a, a reaction to Spartan race shutting me down. I was like, well, I'll just make my own pro team. And so you were the driving force there behind that pro team? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. No, I, I recruited all those guys. Look at that. So how did you know those guys? Was that just through being in the Pac Northwest, running the same trails and circuits? Yep. So a couple of them were Club Northwest with me, uh, Tahoma and Riccardi. And um, I just raced against Max a couple times in different races and reached out to him. And that was kind of Max at the height of his trail prowess, or maybe shortly after. I think he's. I mean, he won Mount Marathon a year ago. He's that's true. He, that guy is incredible. But that was back when he'd, you know, run an eight forty steeple one day, and then go out and do a trail marathon the next day, and then come back and run another track race the next day. He was doing just insane stuff. Mm-hmm. Did you end up beating him that day? I did, but uh, he, it was his first OCR race. <laughs> he dropped me very badly, and then he didn't know how to roll in the barbed wire. <laughs> and I probably made up 35 seconds right there. And then the ending circuit was carry, climb, carry, climb. And so I, I won, but I didn't beat him. <laughs> That's just you were close enough that you could make those those obstacles work for you. At one point, I was undefeated against Max King. I was one <laughs> and I should have stopped right there because he spanked me very badly in the next race we did. That was the most intimidating warm-up I've ever gone on before a race. Yeah, that was off of us. Uh, did you finish Killington that year? No, I cramped out, which is the only reason I was there. Yeah, 
Yeah, I did too. <laughs> and in my mind, it was like, you know, you make those excuses for yourself to drop out. But in my mind, it was like, well, I'm cramping. Let's save it for Atlas race next week. And I think we both had pretty good races that day. Yeah, and to put in perspective, like, Kirk, that prize money you just announced, 1500 1500 Chad won 800 for the tough, dirty Rhino. <laughs> and Atlas race put up five grand for first place the week after Spartan World Championships. Um, it's just a different world back then with what people were throwing around. There's also a, there's also a reason why those those companies aren't around anymore. I would assume that's part of the reasoning as well. That's yeah. also true. Did you get a contract? Did you get a salary with Atlas? Yeah, no no contract with them and that that's absolutely right about why they're not around. Um those those are good guys, but they I think they just had this idea that they could just copy Spartan Race and do it better and throw a bunch of money at it. And, and clearly that didn't exactly work out for them. Um, only only ended up holding two races that were, were both super cool races, especially that SoCal one. Um, but yeah, they uh, they told me they'd start paying me a salary once they got the races going, and then that didn't happen. I almost signed with them. With Atlas Race? Yeah, yeah, they're often offering a salary and a signing bonus to people at that point. And I came real close and I decided, I just feel like I've seen this before. And luckily I didn't because then I got four more years out of Spartan after that, but that would have burned the bridge. Mm. What was your, so then you obviously, you went kind of all in for a couple of years or maybe not all in, it just appeared. You showed up at the big races anyways for a few years and you were always in the shadows. Clearly Spartan decided to snub you from day one by rejecting you right out of the gates and then... Just continuing that with <laughs> coverage editing. But you you were at it pretty heavy for a few years there then, right? Then you decided to go chase some of the series races and, and run some of the big ones? Yeah, I, I got uh, I got signed to the pro the Spartan Pro team after that and that oh, was you when did. they okay. you know Yeah, they so they flew us out to all the series races. Um you know, had kind of mixed success there, snuck onto a couple podiums, but those are just, those are stacked races, so, um, but yeah, that was, that was when Spartan would fly all the, all the pro team to all the, all the series races. Now, as somebody who is, you're pretty much a trail racer exclusively now, right? You're not running OCRs, you're not on the roads, really, right? You're running trail mostly, is that right? Uh, you know, I did, I'll jump in some road races, um, did Berlin Marathon about four years ago, um, but I, I definitely enjoy trail and mountain stuff the most, and then have been, you know, kind of getting into ski racing a little in the winter. What'd you run in Berlin? I uh, so I ran 227 in Berlin. I'm thinking about tackling the marathon, but I want to, I want to wait until I'm 40 to put a master's time up there, I think is what I'm going to do. Yeah, that's what I was just asking. When when's your debut gonna be? Should be soon. I better take advantage of this road running and fitness I got right now, but we'll see. I, I'm thinking at this point if I don't I'm an idiot, so we'll we'll see. You've definitely put down some workouts that I could not put down when I was in two twenty seven shape. Really? You think that? Oh yeah. Oh. Any more compliments or is that is that it? <laughs> Just kidding. That makes me feel good. Yeah, I, we'll see. But I wanted to ask you, the reason I asked about the trail running is you're one who has really run some of the biggest trail races, some of the big ones in the world, right? Like you've run some really big trail races and had success. But here you say that, you know, you also snuck on a few podiums, 
but these guys are really fit, like in the in the Spartan realm back then, like the Cody Hobie, Atkins, all that. Would you say, because you probably have the best perspective out of anybody we've talked to other than maybe like Albin or Atkins, Albin probably, like would you say that actually the top end of some of these Spartan OCR athletes are legit trail runners, as in could go implement themselves, get rid of OCR and just trail run and focus on that and actually hold a candle to the real trail runners or are we just kidding ourselves like we like to think that we could but could could we really hang with true trail runners on big stages oh absolutely yeah i mean it maybe not all the guys you know maybe not the the hunters and the guys who are just true strength obstacle guys but i mean you know john albin is arguably the best trail you know you could argue he's the best trail runner in the world um and it's it's not just a one-off i think that um there are a lot of ocr runners with with a lot of crossover success whereas the the good trail runners who come to obstacle racing have a, a much more mixed record of of doing well but it's a little not confusing like we had, um, who is it? Johnny Luna Lima, Ryan Atkins went over and ran some like Golden Trail Series race, and and Atkins finished what I don't know, twentieth, thirtieth, fiftieth. Johnny Luna thirty fourth in like a in a big Golden Trail Series race, and Johnny Luna Lima was maybe in one further up and then another further back, and they were you know dozens of minutes behind the the winners. And then I'm like, okay, like maybe my perception of what fast is is totally wrong. But maybe those aren't the guys that would go and excel on the trails. I don't know, because obviously John Albin breaks that mold by going and winning some of these major races. But So I had seen those results come in from like an Atkins and a Johnny Luna Lima, who I think are fantastic mountain runners. And they got spanked by some really good Europeans. So that's that was where my curiosity spawned from. Yeah, that's a good point. Those Golden Trail Series races are so deep. There are just so many amazing trail runners in Europe that at kind of the subalter distance that are just insane. Um, but I think if you look at like Atkins and his his best events, which I think would be ultras, and I you know I think that's where where I stack up the best as well. You know, I think in any hundred miler or longer that you put Atkins in, he's gonna he's gonna fare well against pretty much anyone you throw at him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's a weird example because he is so good on the trails, but at some point mass does actually matter, and he just I don't think he can climb with a lot of those guys in a one to two hour race. It's just not even it's not like physically feasible, but. We saw over there, even when when they were in the 30s, I think. Maybe they might have finished up in the 20s by the end, but Johnny still was top three to five on uh, on the descents, and Atkins was up there as well. They just it was the climbing that got them. But uh, like at the time when Cody, when Chad came on the scene, Cody was that year. He won the U.S. Trail Marathon and was it 50k or 50 mile championship? Yeah, I, I can't remember one or the other. I think it was 50 mile. Yeah, he he had won the year after and in between uh, Max King's championships, and and he ran you know legit people and Hobie was an Olympic trials marathoner who was better on the trails than he was on the road. So I think that the runner version of OCR can compete just about anywhere if they get on their terrain. 
but there are some of those Europeans. You just don't want them on their terrain. But you saw what happened with uh, Albin at, uh, where? what was that? Last year, they ran one course that was technical, and it rained, and there was a rocky, like, 4K descent or something, and Albin won by, like, 12 mm. minutes or something like that, or eight minutes, something crazy over all the good runners. So I think it's a horses for courses thing, but, yeah, you're right. Me, the Isaiahs, the Hunt, the people did weren't doing well because they're running out of our league. And to, you know, give another excuse to the – you know, obviously I have a dog in this fight, but you know, it's the golden trail series. That's the championship for those runners for the year. Whereas, you know, Ryan is maybe puts a little block in for that, but that's not his, that's his yeah. sixth top focus for the year. Put him on UTMB mm-hmm. or something like that. And I think, well, yeah, didn't he just run a, was it a hundred K or something? And he had some major issues out there and he still took fifth. And he was actually not, I guess, whatever issues he had described, it didn't sound too excusey, but it was like things didn't go very right for him, and he still was. I think he rolled his yeah. ankle at mile three or something like that. Yeah, I think it was a bad ankle roll where he just couldn't push on it, and he still moved up, and he thought he was like 20th and got fifth. Right. Anyway, so that's a, that's a testament. Uh, so anyways, I want to run over your highlights because you've been – I snuck on the podiums. I've done this and this. But give us what – what is your resume of, of race finishes? Spartan race, your best finishes, trail, some of the big races you've hit and how you've stacked up against the rest of the world, which I know is not your bread and butter bragging, but you're going to have to. <laughs> um, you know, I, I managed to win a couple Spartan races, never a series race. But I think some of my best Spartan races were at World Championships. Um, got fifth the first year I was at Tahoe with a Miss Spear throw. Um, seventh the year before that. Didn't you break your pack in Tahoe? <laughs> yeah, I did, yeah. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I went seventh, fifth, eighth, uh, three years in a row at Spartan Championships. Which, with that stack field, you know, that's... I was I was happy with each of those in its own in its own right, um, with some you know obstacle failures in there, but you know I think I I found my niche more in the in the ultra OCR world. Um, so went to the 2014 World Toughest Mudder, uh, first ultra of any type, and managed to get the win there. Um, that was your first ultra of any type? Yeah. Anything over marathon distance and you went and did 24-hour event? Holy, s- rip the Band-Aid off. Yep, I'd, I'd run a mar- road marathon, but that was, yeah. How many miles did you hit that year? Uh, 95. I I waited at the finish knowing that if I finished before a certain time, I'd have to go out for another lap. But if I didn't finish that lap in time, I'd be <laughs> DQ'd. So... And then the the Tough Mudder CEO came and was trying to convince me to go out for that hundred miler, but by that time, I was uh, I had stood around for about twenty minutes and feared if I went back out, I might get get DQ'd. So you debuted one world's toughest, which again, just like the rest of your career, probably the least acclaim that a WTM world champion has had in my history. In my memory, at least. It was a few years ago, but yeah. And then what about on the trails and in the mountains? Um, so yeah, you know, 
did world toughest that year came back the next year with uh killian to world toughest to try to get the hundred thousand dollar bonus and it was looking good for us we hit 100 miles which would have given us the bonus but atkins and albin beat us by five miles um but <laughs> the uh you know i haven't actually run that many trail ultras um can i pause for a second if the two best long-distance OCR athletes on the planet beat you by five miles in a 24-hour race, that kind of speaks to the performance you and Killian put up. Killian especially was incredible that day. He His knee basically gave out on him halfway, and he ran like half that race doing the skip-hobble thing and still kept, you know... I he'd be waiting for me on some of the obstacles. I'd be waiting for him on the running, but that is the toughest dude I've ever run with. And man, he was so intense too. He was not a dude. You'd want to fail an obstacle and get the team penalty for. <laughs> Did he get on you? Oh yeah. I mean, he, he just would be really frustrated and for good reason when your, your knees hurting that bad and you have to do a penalty loop, you're not going to be psyched about it after 22 hours of running. Was that the year he switched to combat boots partway through? I don't think so. I don't remember that. I think that might have been the year before. Brack, I got a they... glimpse of him. Oh, I was just going to bring this up. You ran a second loop with him somewhere, bring it up. right? Okay, well, just go ahead. We're we're on the same page. At World Championships one year, we raced, and then the next day he ran the ultra. And I ran the second loop with him. And he was... The angriest, pettiest self-motivator I've ever heard. You could just see how he got through Hell Week and basic training and special forces selection and all that. He just took every little outside factor that could be there and just internalized it and just chewed it up until it was disgusting to him and just spit it out. Everything that happened, he found a way to twist it. Just just ranting and raving under his breath the whole time at at people and things and circumstances. Oh, and they think that? Oh, you know, you know, fuck those guys. I'm just, just under his breath the whole time. And I was just in awe of this guy just hammering, after already running the world championship race the day before, just furious at the entire universe. And that was his fuel during the race. It clearly works for him. In, on Let's Run, they talk about running on pure hate. <laughs> but I, I got a glimpse that some people can fuel off of pure hate. <laughs> well, I think, Bracken, you were asking him about tra- his trail uh, trail success then, some of your highlights yeah. highlights there. And some of the big races you've run. Yeah, I mean, I haven't really done that many ultras. Um, did the Rut 50K in Montana, which is a gnarly mountain 50K um, that used to be part of the Sky Ryan World Series, and had a couple couple good finishes there. Um, was third one year, just a couple minutes out of out of first behind the two time defending world champion. Um, which uh, for for trail running, and that definitely was. Who was that at the time? Uh, Crystal, this Spanish guy, I can't remember his name. Christopher something, um, but. You know, I, I think that was that was the the race for me that I I had my my shot at glory. I was uh, in the lead for a lot of the race. They actually cut it from a 50k to a 42k because of snow up on the top of the peak, and I was leading. Found myself in the lead, and literally 
had to ask myself if I was dreaming because it was this weird, foggy, overcast day. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm going to wake up. This I'm not winning the rut right now. And I was, but eventually that, uh, you know, that reality snapped back in the last couple K and this, this guy came flying by me. But, um, and then the other, the other big, uh, race I had some success at was, uh, Leadville hundred miler and managed to get second at that, which was my first actual hundred mile non-obstacle race. You do well on debuts. <laughs> Second at Leadville. Mm. Almost won the rut. And it's just like, it just follows you, just like an OCR. Why why haven't you attracted the attention of a company or the media? What 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 is this? Because it's not like you're ugly <laughs> and you know how to speak. Like, what is the thing that's that's keeping you off the radar? You also won Trans Colorado Trans Rockies. Oh yeah, and and Trans Rockies, the yeah, the six day six day stage race. Um, I mean, I I think I'm just really fortunate in that I I don't need to have a have a sponsor or you know it doesn't doesn't interest me that much. So um, you know, I I think at least part of it is is not wanting to you know sell it to a brand and not not liking the social media side of things and being forced to do, do that. I know with our Spartan contract, we're supposed to post X number of times. I never posted once and wasn't on the team the next year. So (laughs) that's kind of a nice position to be in. Are you, do you own a a dental office or a clinic? Are you a partner? I'm assuming you can make your own schedule, but having a real career, real career, meaning a career outside of like chasing prize money or sponsorships, I think it's a really nice soft pillow to sleep on, knowing that no matter how things go, it takes the pressure off. It makes the results not matter as much other than for like personal pride. And I think that's important for longevity. Yeah, I mean, I used to chase prize money just because it was, you know, it could have been points or whatever. It wasn't, and that, I mean, winning the prize money was fun, but you know, it, it it is nice to be in a situation where that, you know, I, I know Bracken, you've talked about this before, where when you're relying on that for, you know, to pay the bills, it, it takes some of the fun out of it to put that much pressure on. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm at a practice up in, in Alaska working with two other guys. And because we have three people in the practice, um, one person is kind of off every day. So it, it makes for a really flexible schedule. It's, uh, you know, allows for training and traveling to races really nicely. You live the life you create. That's what I say. So good job. I I want to know what happens when a guy takes second at Leadville. Is it like, cause God, God, that race is on a pedestal that and a couple of others, as far as the ultra scene goes, you go take second at Leadville. It's not winning, I understand, but second's noteworthy. Does anything happen? Like, does anything change for a little while? Does somebody reach out to you? Does Hoka say, hey, Chad, how you doing, man? Does anything happen, or is it just like you go back home, not much of a blip on the radar, and you move on? Like, what happens after a big race like that? Uh, I mean, there was some local media coverage that was pretty cool, um, but no, no sponsors reaching out. Um, but I also didn't reach out to any of them, so I don't know how it usually works. <laughs> they don't know where to find you. These, right, they don't know where to find you. That's fair. But these days, it really is. You even hear some of the top-level 
uh, pros like like let's say a Danny Moreno who we interviewed maybe a year ago uh, or so like no hesitation to reach out on their behalf and say hey here's here I am here's my resume uh, what do you think like I think that's kind of the way it goes for a lot of people these days unless you're the super superstar that nobody can ignore like a DeWalter or something seems like it's almost that's kind of the way it works now that's how I got all my first sponsorships sneaking into DMs. <laughs> it's true among other things <laughs> so you hear people talk like chris brown talks like living in missoula you come back from running a race and everyone's like oh like you didn't win or set a national record cool <laughs> like adam's running next to you adam peterman and you you come back to flagstaff after a race and people are are talking like oh you didn't hit you you hit or who was who that odd uh, uh tyler, tyler was German, talking yeah like you you qualified for you qualified oh, yeah. for Olympic trials. Cool. Did you run like under two ten? No. Two nineteen. Oh. Sorry, he had a bad day. Yeah. Alaska seems to be kind of the same thing. Like you're surrounded by monsters, Olympians and national record holders and mountain animals. Is that does does second at Leadville move the needle up there? Or are they all kind of like, ah, oh, sorry you couldn't get the win, Chad? <laughs> that's a that's a great point. There's uh yeah, there are definitely a bunch of studs up there. you know, it's where Usually over half of the Olympians for uh, cross-country skiing train in, in Anchorage. Um, I roommate for the last five years um, when he's not over in uh, Europe competing all winter. Um, you know, was he finished sixth at the Olympics last year. And then Keegan Randall won the gold medal in the Olympics for cross-country skiing. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely... A, uh, even though it's not a huge pond in terms of population, in terms of concentration of endurance athletes, it's, uh, it's a pretty big pond in that way. I've been curious, um, you know, you, I see, again, this is Strava related, but you and Lars Arneson hang out once in a while. I see you guys do some training and he really kind of popped on the scene last year in Spartan and I'm sure you can gauge your fitness off of his. And you see him coming and having a little bit of success and almost and winning a national series race. And I always wondered, like, does this move the needle for Chad a little bit? Is Chad and Lars going to hop on the same plane one day to come down? Now the race, the Spartan season is all upside down, so it doesn't matter. But did that ever cross your mind? Like one of your training buddies was coming back to the sport that you once inhabited. uh, Or did that not ever cross your mind? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, you're right on. I, you know, we talked about going to, to races and it just always, I always wasn't, wasn't quite ready for it or, you know, save it for next year or the timing didn't work out. Um, but yeah, seeing him have that success, I, I don't have any illusions that I'd be beating him at a Spartan race because he, you know, pretty much crushes me at, you know, whether we're running 400 repeats or, you know, doing trail stuff. Um, he's got that type of running. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, ran, we, we paced him for a time trial sub 15 on the track last year, but his top end speed is pretty insane too. Did he break 15? Oh yeah. 1459. It was unofficial. We, we did a hop in, hop out pace job, but yeah, he, he ran like a 64 last lap to, to just sneak under. It's guaranteed if Chad Trammell's in a 5K, it's going 1459 <laughs> on the track. <laughs> no matter how your split's set up, it's getting there. Right. Yeah, it took me, uh, 
it took me a lot of years to convince Lars to jump in there, and it's, it, I just knew it would be a good fit for him because he, he's a better rock climber than I am. He's a better mountain rider than I am. So I, I knew it would hit once he, he got out there. I'm just It's too bad that he couldn't get in there a little before Spartan Race's competitive demise. But Him at Tahoe would have been nasty. Oh, yeah, for sure. And Lars and I joke about how, you know, there are several Nordic skiers from Anchorage from the last few years who could destroy us and the rest of the field. Like, Nordic skiers are the perfect Spartan Race prototype. Yeah. I got a little taste of it, Kirk, going up there. I went up with uh, Killian back in the day and hung out with Chad. And first day we got there, we got off the plane, and they're like, hey, and, and Novakovic. And he's like, we're going to go over to the cross-country ski course. And we go over there, and everyone, everyone's out there in, like, the type of attire that you only wear when you're really, really fast and really good. And everyone's just flying by and Chad's like, oh, I'll run with you instead. And we ran while everyone skied. And then the next night it was track interval session over at the Dome in Alaska. And I show up there. And I think they went something like mile, mile, 12, 8, 8, 8, 6, 6. It was like some long descending pyramid. And first mile, I ran 503 hanging off the back in like ninth place or something like, or it was like 456 or something. And I'm trying to recover. Everyone's jogging around, chatting, starting the next one, and they start cutting down faster. And it's just like everywhere you went in that city were just monsters. And they all show up and train together, and it seemed like a lack of ego. And you could see that if you can just hang in that climate long enough, you're going to become your best self because everyone does everything up there. It's not like around here where like you ski or you run. and if Or in Colorado, like you run the mountains or you ski the mountains. And everyone in Alaska seems to, yeah, we'll jump in. We'll run track intervals at the Dome or we'll go run mountains or we'll ski. They just seem to be really well-rounded distance monsters. Yeah, a lot of those guys that would show up to the track workout, like Lars back in the day, that would be his one run per week. And every other day was, you know, ski touring or you know, hiking up a mountain. Yeah, it makes me feel even worse. (laughs) (laughs) Why Anchorage, of all places? Yeah, I I never had any plans to move to Alaska, but I had a buddy from dental school. I mean, well, I mean, sorry, for for you in particular, but also like everybody, all these monsters, why why Anchorage? I mean, you you included. Oh, yeah. As a whole. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think having that, having it be kind of the home base for Nordic skiers is a lot of it. I mean, basically all the Nordic skiers are all the best mountain runners. You know, when, when they show up to these mountain races, they're gonna, gonna win. And then the other thing is just the, the kind of focus of the, the area on mountain running. Um, people don't really aren't into trail races as much and definitely not road races, but there's a mountain running series and Mount Marathon's the you know biggest sport in the state other than the Iditarod. So um, yeah, I think it's a, a little culture and then a little just, uh, you know, Alaska attracting all these really good Nordic skiers from around the country who often will stick around. Well, it's like, um, it kind of fights, it kind of fights tradition. Like you're basically at sea level. Most endurance training camps are at altitude, and I wonder this for you too. Like, 
Don't you? You went and won Leadville above 10,000 feet, but you live at zero feet above sea level. Like, a guy like you moving to, to Anchorage doesn't make sense to a guy like me, like, logistically, as far as adaptation goes, and then hearing all these Nordic skiers um, not living at altitude as well. That's why it more surprises me than anything, is the elevation piece. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty unique because we have all these mountains that just start at sea level and go straight up from there. But um, I feel like the reason why a lot of these athletes from Alaska don't necessarily crush it in the lower 48 or you don't see them on the world stage crushing as much is it's kind of the, the John Albin effect where, you know, living at sea level and not being altitude specialist, you that you know, you end up missing out on most of the the big race options because a lot of them are at altitude. And I feel like I've always just been, my strength has always been aerobic, so I can do a little better going up to altitude. Um, Trans Rockies, you know, went well without really acclimating much, so I figured I could give uh, Leadville a try and... Um, yeah, it's just it just always worked out okay for me, but definitely wouldn't be, you know, I I think if I was a professional runner, I'd be living in Colorado or Flagstaff just because I think that altitude living is so important, especially for racing at altitude. So you're you're starting to say what brought you to Alaska, if you don't mind picking back up there. Yeah, I mean nothing nothing super exciting. Just had a a buddy who moved up and really liked it, so I went to visit. No plans to move there. Um, but went on a super sunny summer week and just fell in love with it and had one job interview while I was there. And that job interview was really just to, <clears throat> so I could write some of the expenses of the trip off as a job, you know, job interview trip. <laughs> and by the time that interview came around, it was like, I'm actually going to take this seriously because this, I could see myself living here. And that's who I've worked with since 2014. Moved up about two months later. I've said it to Lisa a few times that if we didn't have kids, I'd either be in Colorado or Alaska. Mm -hmm. And Alaska is intriguing to me because I don't like altitude, but there's no intensity limiter. You can run all your mountains you want, but because you're at sea level, you can rip whenever you want too. Colorado was hard for me because it was hard to rip. It was costly. It was tiring. It was, the training intensity had to be dialed down so much that... I didn't love it, so I can see the appeal of Alaska. Yeah, there are definitely trade-offs for living at sea level. Um, yeah, you're definitely less likely to to burn yourself out or overtrain, whereas that would be a constant concern at altitude. It's just you know always that extra stimulus, just, just live in there. If you listen to this at all, you know I've been doing almost exclusive, well, not almost, exclusively indoor training all winter as I've been healing my quad tendon. And so I'm just watching endless races, and I'm on a kick right now of watching Leadville and Hard Rock. I just have really good coverage on those. And so I probably watched three or four Leadville videos and three or four Hard Rock in the last. And I kind of equate those two. They're like cousin races in my mind. So I want to hear about your Leadville experience. Because I'm really intrigued by it right now. Yeah, Leadville's an interesting race because it's, uh, you know, it's one of the oldest ultras in the U.S., um, after western states um but i you know i kind of picked it for a reason in that it's not super technical there's there's a lot of climbing but 
hard rock is as technical as it gets in Colorado. Um, Leadville, the big challenge is the altitude. You're starting and finishing at 10,000 feet, and you only drop below 10,000 feet for a short period of time, and you end up going up to 12.6, I think. So, you know, the challenge isn't so much the train, it's the altitude. Um, my goal showing up there was to get on the podium. Um, Jared Hazen was fresh off of running the second fastest time at uh, Western States ever. So I was just like, well, winning's off the table, but let's see if we can sneak onto the podium. So you, you believed you could be on the podium there coming in? Yeah. Um, Based off what? I don't know. It was just, you know, you've got to pick a goal. And um, I I did have success in Trans Rockies, so I felt like riding at altitude would work. Um, like Chris Brown was there that year um, and some other, some other solid runners. So, you know, I... I didn't pick myself as being able to compete with the Jared Hazens of the world, but I also knew there'd be a lot of carnage there and that running a smart race, I thought I could be on the podium. Um, so went out the first half, got carried away. It's, it's impossible not to at out when you're going to altitude from sea level. I feel like that's the hardest thing is, I mean, a hundred miler in general, it's hard to put the correct rev limiter on, but when you're at that altitude, it's just like, you've just got to walk up the hills, basically. Um, so Jared Hazen got away, and but then coming up Hope Pass, the, the high point of the course, I saw him walking back towards me, <laughs> and he was having issues and dropped out, and I found myself in first place all of a sudden. It reminded me of the rut where it's like, this never was in my, any visualization or anything in my wildest dreams. And so that first half, were you solo? Were you strung out in no man's land or did you have some company? Uh, I was solo. I was um, in second place. Jared was way in front of me. Um, Ryan Miller, I I could look back and see maybe five minutes back at times um, when there was a big, big view. Um but yeah, I got to got to halfway and was feeling pretty good, but um I've had you know my my biggest weakness in ultras is having trouble eating and I got to the had all my food and everything planned out, got to the first aid station, took a bite of a sandwich and spit it out and was like, "Well, we're we're not eating solid foods today." So I knew that a, a bonk was probably imminent. That's a terrible feeling to realize at the first aid station that I'm going to crash today now. Yeah, you know, first world stuff as I did, I ate a Krispy Kreme donut every lap. Second one had a, had everything ready to go and couldn't, couldn't take down any solid food carbs. And unfortunately that happened also at, at Leadville. So, um, so what'd you do? I should have come prepared with a whole bunch of Morton. I only had one bottle of it, so ended up drinking a whole lot of Pepsi that day, <laughs> um, including <laughs> a lot way too early in the race with the caffeine. Like, should have saved that specifically for the second half. Um, and I just bonked pretty hard. I, you know, I came through halfway about on record pace. Came through in 7:45. Um, and my second half took me over 10 hours. So it was, 
it was a, a long, slow death. And that included, <laughs> managed to take a wrong turn on an out and back, which was almost impressive. <laughs> How much did you add on? Uh, just about a mile, but it was, it's funny because I, you know, I got passed by the eventual winner, Ryan Miller during that time, who absolutely would have crushed me either way. I mean, he beat me by over an hour. Um, but he never actually, I never saw him pass me because I picked up Lars as my pacer and I was so excited to like have someone to talk to after 50 miles alone. And we just got chatting and talking about things. And then, you know, five minutes later, it was like, wait a sec, have you seen a trail marker recently? And he went back to check and was like, nope, you, we definitely didn't see one. Let's, let's turn around. Uh, Kirk. You'll mention sometimes that I'm a very chatty runner. No. I think Chad probably can have me beat on a run with talking, if only because his aerobic <laughs> capacity is bigger and I'm out of breath here. But Chad, Chad's a run chatter as well. Hmm. Well, being a fly in the wall for you two running together, I think when I run with Bracken, like if there there isn't – five seconds of silence on a run. If it's a recovery run or a steady run, there's not, not even five seconds, two seconds, not two seconds of silence. So that'd be an interesting run combo. It's because we never see each other. We have a lot to catch up on. Yeah. Same with, same with me and Bracken, but you're, I mean, as this podcast shows, you guys can just BS about a topic for a long time and have it be interesting. So it's the nicest thing you could say to me. <laughs> Shucks. Not, not to move on from Leadville. But obviously, you, you held on for dear life and finished second, which is probably a very painful to, way to run that race, which most 100-milers probably are. It, it was actually a sprint finish at the end, basically. Like, oh, the, I could look back and see the guy coming down Main Street, which is an uphill finish. And oh. I thought I was sprinting at the end. I've since seen videos that show unequivocally that I was not sprinting, <laughs> despite what it felt like in my head, but... <laughs> Yeah, it was it was way too close for comfort. That is a nightmare scenario <laughs> to be over nine. I mean, you're over a hundred miles at that point in, and having someone closing in on you at the finish. I did it. I did all this work, and I'm going to lose it in the last fifty meters. Yeah, my pacers. I wanted to kill me for not just being able to run earlier, but um, I made another pretty big mistake, which was I brought a change of shoes but like an idiot I brought the exact same shoe a, a pretty low profile innovate and just had crazy bruising on the forefoot were you still in the x talon 190s for that <laughs> no no uh, the the 230s not much better so not quite that bad oh but goodness. pretty close you ran leadville and x talons yeah not a chance. I would have 12 broken bones by the end of that. I had a neuroma in my foot that lasted for over 10 months after that. So I, I would not recommend it. If you're bringing a change of shoes, bring a completely different type of shoe. Although I will say, Chad is a, I'll run in anything on whatever. Every time I've seen him, he's either in X Talons or Reebok All Terrain, just doing whatever. Mountain runs, races, ultras, doesn't matter. He has iron feet. My road marathon PR for quite a while was in a pair of X talons. <laughs> what <laughs> what do you say to that? What? Like I? <laughs> yeah. Okay. It, it was a half trail marathon, so it's 
uh, there's this marathon in, in Anchorage that unfortunately just changed the course on that um, runs through some military land on a dirt road. So you really, it's tricky because you, you're running about nine miles on dirt. So it's, and some of it gets a little technical. So it's a, it's a tough decision, but I, I did all my training on the track and getting ready for it in, in a pair of X-Talon 190s and ended up racing in those, even though the last, you know, 14, 15 miles are all, all road. <laughs> I mean, the fact that you haven't had a stress fracture means that you have Wolverine's bones. For anybody who doesn't know, it's like a, what, a six, seven ounce, seven ounce trail shoe with like aggressive lugs uh, meant for sticky, goopy terrain. And you can roll it into a ball. <laughs> and it's flexible, right? You can roll the heel, the toe to the heel opening, no problem. Uh, that's wild to me. Well, we, Brack and I grew up in the lighter is better era with, you know, track spikes and. Yep. You know, before before super shoes, where it was, you know, just how many ounces, and you know, every the common knowledge was that every ounce you're saving on your feet was going to save you a second per mile. So, you get pretty obsessed with the the weight in the low profile shoes. I can't believe you did a hundred miler in X Talons. <laughs> so, Kirk, I know you've got a place you want to go, but I have a two part follow up. The first is, if you did it again, what would you run in? And will you do it again? Do you have an itch to scratch there? Or did you get the full Leadville experience and you don't want that again? Um, so second question first, I, I would like to run it again. Um, having so many things go wrong with fueling and shoes and everything and still getting second definitely leaves me wanting to go back and do it better. Um, and yeah, I was going to ask you guys what, you know, what you're into for trail shoes at the moment. Um, I getting ready for this stage race. I I just realized that I don't have a shoe that's like a my my go to trail shoe at the moment. Um, I did try on that normal brand uh, Killian shoe when I was over in mm. in Europe and didn't get a run in it, but it felt really good. So I'm, I definitely want to get a pair of that and try it out. And those are supposed to last just hundreds and hundreds of miles. So. What are you waffling between right now? What do you have packed in that car of yours? Oh man, I've got a, a pretty wide variety, but um, been run the in the uh, Saucony Peregrine Trail a decent amount, and they're just super comfortable. Not as not a true like light race shoe, but for racing for three days, having a little extra hmm? extra something there is probably worth it. I used to love that shoe, loved the old models, and then they narrowed the forefoot a little on me. And it just didn't work. I ran in, I don't know if you remember this, Brack, and I would hammer in those Peregrines. They were, bull- I felt fast <laughs> in them, but they were still like a pretty big shoe. So I felt well protected. And then something about the newer model a couple of years ago, and I just couldn't do it anymore. But they were lighter and they were more nimble, but they like hurt my feet. So rest in peace, Peregrine. I won't be wearing you anytime soon. Yeah, I had to size up a half size in those for that mm. reason. I wonder if you would like the uh, S-Lab Pulsars. Mm, I actually have a, a pair of Pulsar soft grounds also. Um, oh, you do? Really, really like them, okay. but they, with the upper being so... I, I don't like riding a very tight upper, so they, they have caused some rubbing uh, and some you know upper, you know, kind of upper foot issues. I suppose if you're used to the 190, you need something <laughs> moccasin-like up top. Sounds like you could run whatever the heck you want. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I don't know what I'd recommend. Oh, you must have other shoes with you, or is that your plan, the Peregrine? Um, 
Yeah, and then the you know I've run in uh, the Nike Terra Kiger for a long time. When I was recovering from that mm. um, four foot neuroma issue after Leadville, I found that that was the only shoe that was stiff enough in the forefoot that it didn't hurt to run in. So I was doing all my road runs and everything in those. Um, they got a little room in the forefoot too, especially once you break them. Yeah. They, they open up in the forefoot. Nice. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that's, that's definitely kind of my go-to, like, I know it'll work for me. I just don't love the, uh, I don't, I, I really don't love that shoe, even though it, it works for my foot. I don't get along with any of Nike's trail shoes and I love their road shoes, but I love their road. I love their basketball shoes. I love their trainers, their racers, their spikes, and their trail shoes feel to me like they're designed by a different company. I've never understood it. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I feel like they, I, I thought they were going to nail it with this um, more recent, you know, their kind of super shoe, the Zagama, but I'm not a huge fan of that either. They have their, is it the Ultrafly that's coming out shortly? And it's supposed to be the Vaporfly for the trail. That one looks interesting, but still, <laughs> Chad's gone. I think he went to plug the phone in or something, and he's gone. I think I think I'm back, but sorry about that. Got a little too hot in there. I guess so. Yeah, I was trying to turn the AC on, but I thought it might be too loud when it gave me the warning, and then like two minutes later, it it just quit on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Well, I don't think we have too much. We can we can kind of start to move towards the end here just so we can try to avoid that happening again yeah we lost chad for a minute there but cool. we got him back he's coming to us live from his car somewhere i don't even know where you are right now but where are you exactly in in route to moab okay so uh, yeah just between uh between salt lake city and moab just in the middle of the random desolate place off the highway is that where you're at yep just at a uh a truck stop, basically. I thought they were going to have decent Wi-Fi here, but no luck. But, uh, yeah, everything's worked okay except for the, the phone overheating. Mm. All right, so I've, I'm have i intrigued by stage racing, and, and I want to hear your plan for it. So you have three days of racing, and I want to take me through start to finish how you're thinking about gear and fueling and what you're doing before and after the races and in between, and just walk us through it if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we're pretty set up for this just from Saturday, Sunday, Spartan races over the years. Mm. You know, I I think that the key with longer distance trail stage races are, you know, the key would be to fuel well during the event to start that recovery process early. Um, you know, in a, in a normal event, single day, you end that race totally depleted and that's no big deal but you want to try to avoid that if possible um that being said i'm i'm a bit of a hypocrite there as as i mentioned earlier i'm not the best at in race fueling but that's that's the plan at least so are you morton now uh i've been doing i I found something that i liked recently which is um i i've always struggled with goo or gel packets but goo now has a liquid energy um where it's just like you're taking a shot of concentrated um, liquid, and it's it's really worked well for me. You know, just just starting to mess with it with training. We roomed together, Kirk. I don't know if you knew this. Chad and I stayed together for one of the years in Tahoe, the Spartan World Championships. Would that have been like 2015 or something? Yep. 
morning of, we're getting our breakfast together and our fueling, and I'm pouring out my fuel and measuring. Chad went down to the vending machine and bought a Powerade, dumped half of it into each flask. That works. Set. That was it. I, I also got a Snickers bar to eat for breakfast that morning. So. Oh, that's right. Did you take fifth that year? Uh, I think that was fifth that year. Yeah, and I, I measured and I, I tweaked myself right all the way to like a 22nd fit place finish. <laughs> Is that normal for you, candy candy bar the morning of a race? Yeah, I mean, I've always felt like, you know, you could you could eat a Power Bar or you could eat a Snickers and you look at the nutrition facts and they're, they're roughly the same. So might as well eat the one during the race that tastes the best. But Blue Powerade, I'd never seen a competitive athlete <laughs> fill their soft flasks with Blue Powerade before, but it worked. Yeah, I, I think I ended up, that was the year I lost my vest anyway, so it, it I never got a chance to, to take much of it down. What happened on that? Was it going over like a a, a cargo net or something? You just snapped the, the clasp? Yeah, the flask came off during a roll, or, a, or I think it was up over a wall or something. And so what what did you do? Was that after a while? Did you put the compression shirt you had on over your vest? Well, I don't recall. What exactly did you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the the um, you're right. It's it, yeah. There are some goofy pictures of me from that year, but the uh, the vest snapped and was hanging loose, and I didn't know how to hold it in place, and you had to finish with what you started with. So I took it off, took my compression shirt off. And then put the compression shirt over the top just to keep it from bouncing around. But it took me, man, at altitude when your heart rate's high, <laughs> brain doesn't work so well. So it took a long time to try to to get to that solution there. You find creative ways to set yourself back in races sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that's a generous way to put it. Should you retroactively be DK? Be DQ'd, Chad? Should you? I mean, you left crap out in that mountain. Should you be stricken from the results? Yeah, I think if I if anyone listens to this and goes back and sees that I didn't finish with one of the with the flask I started with, I think that would be a DQ. So if Spartan wants to wants to pull that, well, they've they've fired all of Spartan's employees by now, so I don't think they have anybody to review the footage. <laughs> Yeah. Did you hear Koble's gone? I, I just saw that about Koble, so I think he'd be the the man that would be uh, be doling out that DQ. Everybody's safe now. Sad to hear that. He's the linchpin for that operation, in my mind. Um, but yeah, back to uh, to just recovery between the races. I I really don't have anything, any secret sauce other than just start start feeling right away after the race. I mean these these races finish early. So you have, you know, 21 hours to get ready for the next one and getting that, that fuel in early. So you don't have to, you know, save it to late night where it could cause some stomach issues. Um, is kind of the only other, other big tip I have for, for stage racing. What's your effort plan for each stage? I mean, you always tell yourself to take it easy, but Honestly, at Trans Rockies, I, I tipped over to the red line in the first stage and just happened to bounce back from it. I, I just feel like some people can can do that. Um, I would say that not to trust the way you feel and trust your feelings the morning of the subsequent races, because every time I woke up and even warming up was just like, there's no way I'm going to be able to run today. There's It's not going to happen. Yeah. And just 
give yourself a chance and you know there's a there's a good chance that if you don't talk yourself out of it that your body will come around over time yeah those second day and third day warm-ups are just terrible and oftentimes lying (laughs) yep i think any back-to-back races i've run in the last two years i have now maybe it's age i don't know what it is but i felt better day two even after racing all out on day one i'm like warm-up feels worse everything else feels worse then i get into the effort and I'm very perplexed because I went to the well the day before and I was creaky out of bed on day two. And then you get five, 10 minutes in, you're like, why do I feel this way right now? This does not line up with anything. So I don't know if you experienced that either, but I have recently. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple things to that. One is I think you're physiologically unable to redline early and that saves you from, Hmm. you know, Hmm. the effort that could, could have been the issue on day one. And then the other thing is just perceived effort. It's um, there's you know a book that talks about perceived effort as how you f- not it's not how you feel it's how you feel about how you feel. Sure. So when you expect to feel crappy and you start coming around and feeling better than you expected, your you know radio perceived exertion drops and all of a sudden it starts snowballing in a good way instead of a bad way. Is that Endure you're referencing there? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, yep. that's one I think people should read. Oh, totally. Especially if you have some inkling that you're leaving time on the table due to a mental reason. That's a good one for me. I needed that. I, I read it between surgeries because I lost I lost a lot of my toughness. I needed to read it. Yeah, it's a it's a good listen to. I've listened to that audio book while running a few times. And it's just... Mm-hmm. It's super. It's just super interesting if you're a if you're an endurance athlete and dork, just going deep dive into all the different factors and limiting factors of endurance. So yeah, I definitely would recommend that. I shouldn't say I read it. I listened to it. As well. <laughs> Do you have any other recommendations? You sounds like you're a big reader slash listener. Um, yeah, I I I, uh, I like that one and the sports gene. I really enjoyed. Um, just talking about the factors of, you know, what leads to success in, in sports. And it, there are definitely a couple kind of epiphany aha moments in there where it made a lot of sense. Um, one kind of going back to our, like people we know in college, um, they, they talk about how genetically everyone has a baseline level of fitness but they're also genetically predisposed to respond to training. So when you had those runners during high school and college that came into the season and then just plateaued and never got better, you know, you'd always kind of blame that person for being lazy, but it honestly, it was probably more of a genetic predisposition to being a high baseline genetic performer, but not as high of a responder to to things interesting did that come from that book that's one of the big takeaways yeah yeah Brecken, i'm looking at the clock and there's like three things i want to get to one's quick but i want to you know we should be wrapped up in like 15 minutes or less so i just i didn't know where you wanted to go with this but i had three still three things on my list well once hit your three are you sure I have a fourth <laughs> if we get there well, well, one is really quick, and it's just a, a pure personal yeah. curiosity, and it's not on topic with anything we've been talking about, and then my other two are on topic. Um, but one is like, dude, you 
you live in Anchorage in the winter, man. I I don't I can't fathom what that is like. And I actually just wanted to know from a pure curiosity standpoint, what the what is that like? How do you manage it? you do all your training in the dark under lamps around cross country ski uh, courses like how does it how do you do it i i never thought i had an issue with sunlight and i was saying this to my girlfriend jess and then this winter i realized like i don't feel as good i don't feel as good in the winter and when i'm not getting out and seeing the sun and you go i believe an entire few days in a row or even longer without really seeing the sun jump the horizon correct so what's that like yeah i mean the the darkness is definitely an issue it's it's a lot darker up here than you know where you guys live um in Anchorage, you know, it's not as far north in Alaska as where you, the sun literally doesn't come over the horizon, but effectively it, you basically get dawn and dusk and no no midday. But, you know, the winter training options, the first couple of years I was up here, I ran through the winter and, you know, it makes you, makes you tough. Um, you get fat biker, fat tire bikers out there that basically groom the single tracks that make them pretty decent to run and it's it's very doable to uh, you know slog around especially if you have some ice ice bugs or or vjs with studs in them um but i've gotten to the point and the reason why i've stayed in plan to stay in alaska is that i've just fallen in love with the winter sports you know backcountry skiing and cross-country skiing are so fun and you know i don't think i think there are a lot of people who see people who are cross-country skiers being great runners and think, well, if I do that, I'll become a great runner. And I don't think that's necessarily how it works, but um, I do think just for enjoyment and longevity's sake, I I like having a season where I'm not running as much and I get a focus on other things. And I think it's good mentally and, and physically in the long run. Um, and we're, we're super lucky to have the, the big indoor track at the Dome to run on. Um, and some some roads that get plowed decently. So, you know, I think as far as places to go in the winter to train, um, I think people's perception of Alaska are would be that you know, a lot worse than that is. That being said, I, you know, I'm going to do a do a running race, three day running race, without having done much running mileage. So we'll see how how it actually works out in in practice. Mm. Well, I'm more curious as anything. Like, how many? If you think back to the last two months. Let's say you did 60 days of training. How many of those training were done in the dark? You know, it's getting better now to where you can get out after after work in the daylight. But, you know, it's you really just kind of stop thinking about it. You're either on ski trails that are lighted or you get a good headlamp and you go out. And it it makes a big difference that everything is covered in snow. It, it really brightens things up a lot. Um, the darkest times of the year that are actually depressing here are like October, November before snow falls and sticks around and it's just dark. And that's what I think a lot of people experience in the winter, but having a full, you know, landscape covered in snow, then shining a little light on it, or even, even by moonlight, it's, it's enough to, enough to see. And it doesn't feel as dark as as it would otherwise without the snow there. Well, how many, like how many hours of daylight are you getting? Like what's your window? Like, like your shortest windows of daylight, a couple hours at most. Yeah. Shortest, shortest window, winter solstice at 
technically sunrise is about 10:30 in the morning and sunsets about 3 p.m. But you know, like I was saying, during that time, it's it's dawn and dusk. It's never never feels like true daylight because um, the sun just barely peeks over the horizon. So you know, it's it's dark during that time for sure. I kind of liked it up there. Now, granted, I was there for three days. I didn't have to sit in it, but that I'm I'm more of a night owl by nature, and having that semblance of it felt more like dawn than dusk almost at night. But it was like pre-dawn all night. Like you could get out and go hit trails, and it was kind of cool if you wanted to do it at 10 p.m. or midnight. You could, and and yeah, I I think it could wear on you, but I could see how people could be invigorated by that. Yeah, totally. You know, once you once you just get in the mindset that's going to be dark and you get your headlamp out and keep, you know, have a backup one, keep them charged, it it just you just stop kind of thinking about it. It's that transition time, like I said, October, November where you're going from daylight to dark, that that's a little challenging, but um yeah, I I'd, I'd say that I've you know, I I've gotten to the point where I look forward to the winters almost as much as the summers just because of what you can what you can do and what the options are. Okay. I, I actually thought it got you had a narrower window of light. I think here, what do we have, about eight hours between sunrise and sunset at Solstice? Roughly eight or nine maybe in Minnesota, maybe less. So I guess you maybe got even four less, hours, yeah. three hours. I guess I could deal with that. Um, but nonetheless, I would see... I, you know, that would still affect me, I think, heavily. Um, we can move on from that just for the sake of time. I was curious. Um, the other thing is, um, just watching you, you know, I got very curious about your your training philosophy or your training uh, methodology. You know, I'll see you do a warm-up that might be four or five miles someday before your training session. And I'm like, is that a four-mile warm-up? I'm pretty sure Chad just did a four-mile warm-up before his training session and, and it just got me at times i see things pop up that make me curious on your strava um so do you have a do you have a training philosophy or style that you follow are you coached like what how does that look um i am not coached i like i like coaching myself i i went to david roach uh six years ago maybe to coach me and i only lasted a few days before i even though he's great, I just realized I really enjoy just doing exactly what I want each day based on conditions and what my friends are doing and what I what I feel like doing. So, you know, it's it's definitely more of a, I, I enjoy the planning it myself. Um, when I care about training, I'll say, okay, I want to get this and this done this week. You know, I want a long tempo workout and I should do a, do a speed workout. Um, but, you know, the bad thing about having a everyone in town having a coach is that then you you don't train together everyone has their own thing so um you know i i like just being able to to have people to train with um definitely i I think if i cared solely about performance i'd be running doubles with high mileage that's that's always been my sweet spot um not focusing so much on the long run kind of like camille heron came out with recently talking about how the best thing for her buck, and I think for mine, is um, it's the the number of miles, the number of sessions over the the crazy hard long runs. You know, I know that I, I do listen to you guys, and the swing the hammer hard is definitely a a motto. But I've always felt like those really really long hard sessions have they just 
that kind of the juice isn't worth the squeeze. It's not worth the recovery that's needed for those to, um, hmm. you know, for the, the benefit and the, the super compensation you get. So that's, that's always been kind of my sweet spot is, is high mileage, lots of doubles. Um, but you know, now I'm, I trying to do exactly what I like to do in training and then figure out what races make sense based on the, the training and the things I want to do for fun. I've always thought of Chad as the social drinker of the running world. <laughs> Where those long warm-ups you see so many times it's like, I was going to do five by mile, but, you know, Stacy was running eight miles in the morning and the track was there. So I like ran with her and did her eight mile run and then started that. And then someone was cooling down and I went with them and got, <laughs> I see so many disjointed runs where Chad's, his warm up is who's running right now. Seems to just feed off of that. And I always find it humorous where if you tried to follow, to script out a plan off of his, you wouldn't be able to always mm. link the thread's like, what? He did this last week, and this week he's doing this, and I don't get the progression, but you probably jump into other people's workouts as much as anyone I know. Yeah, no, I, I love doing that. Um, it's just, just an easy way to, to shut the brain off, and I, I coach one athlete who's a um, female Olympic trials qualifier, and, um, you know, when I'm pacing her for a workout, it's just, it's like a kind of a mental cheat code where it's like, man, 540 pace never feels this easy while I'm running it by myself compared to when I'm pacing someone. So definitely enjoy the social mm -hmm. aspect and jump into other people's workouts. I want to say something about that swing the hammer hard workout because I've had a few people question me since Mark Botchers came on here and talked about capping his runs at two hours and Camille talked about hers and now you're talking about it. I don't want people to misconstrue when we talk about a real big swing the hammer hard, we're almost always climbing uphill on a treadmill or up and down a ski slope. You, you hear some people like Renato Canova has his special block of training where it's like 10K tempo in the morning and 10 by 1,000 in the afternoon or 2 by 5K. And they're doing these big multi-day blocks where they're pounding. Most of our big swing the hammers, you're only even taking him impact half of the time and it would be downhill or not at all on the uphill. And I think that's one big disconnect that may, people may be making with some of our stuff. And sometimes it's true. But because Kirk and I are very, would be considered lower volume athletes, even when we feel like we're doing big volume, we're not running 80, 100, 120 mile weeks. So we make up for some of that in the long sessions where if you're running 120, you don't need a four hour day. But also most of our big swing your hammer hard sessions have way less impact than a lot of people would expect. We're like running a, a mountain ultra in Colorado might leave you smashed for a month afterwards running it on like Killington slopes might leave you smashed for a week because the limiter was your downhill and you couldn't even, you didn't run flats. You, you didn't push the heart rate the way it normally would be. So a lot of our swing the hammer hard sessions are not the typical marathon or ultra marathon or session. So I just want to make sure that we're, some people aren't misconstruing saying I got to go, go get five hour tempos. And like, that's, that's not what we're doing. Yeah. That's a good clarification. I just think that a lot of people, if they're trying to do a hundred mile race, they assume they should do a 60 miler in training. Right. Right. And, you know, like I said before, first world toughest mutter, you know, I, I never ran above 20 miles in training, but I was running 120 to 140 a week. So I just, I don't think that that's, and that's significant. It, it's good for practicing things that you're going to feel in the ultra, but I don't feel like physiologically, at least for me, it, it makes sense 
to have to recover as much as that as that something big like that would take. Mm-hmm. I've done probably the longest training run I ever did was eighteen. I've done twenty one in training, but it was on a ski slope. And I was way more beat up on 18 than I was off 21 a ski slope. But that one 100-mile week I ran, I could feel that I could get back out and train the next week, but I got better at an ultra in that one week than I did on an 18- or 22-mile run, which would take me a week to recover from. So I can see in that one small little snapshot, I just felt more efficient. You don't feel more efficient at the end of a 22-miler. <laughs> you feel worse. Yep. No, that's exactly right. That's terrain dependent, though. I have a feeling you're probably getting three hours once in a while in training if you're on specific terrain. I would imagine. Hey. Yeah. What I you know what I definitely do some big days now, but what I what I'm saying is that that's if I was training just for performance, I wouldn't hit some of those big days. I I love doing big link ups in the in the mountains on skis or on foot now, but I don't think they're I, I think they're detrimental to performance after just going out and grinding for you know Mm -hmm. 11 miles in the morning and seven Mm -hmm. miles in the evening yeah they don't mesh well with high volume the entire rest of the week either which is a good point yeah um yeah so i think we're over two hours already so bracken i don't i just want to know what chad's plans are coming up here and uh what his goals are after he he maybe yeah. crosses the 40 barrier which i'm sure he's starting to think about but because that's what i'm thinking about but so i don't know if you have anything else you want to ask but just being respectful of the time now let's find out about what 2023 and 2024 look like yeah i mean i i really was gonna jump into some spartan oh, that races been this so year good. but it's not looking like that maybe is a thing <laughs> i know it would have been fun to to come out with with you boys and mix it up but uh, yeah, doing the stage race this weekend, uh, 50 miler at Lake Sonoma, and um, then going back to Trans Rockies. So it's gonna be a stage race heavy, uh, oh. heavy year. Um, I just had such a good time with that. Um, and then last year, I, I won a mountain race that got me into Mount Marathon, um, which I've only done once before, and is is honestly not totally in my wheelhouse. But uh, I'm planning on on doing that again this this July 4th. All right, two follow-ups to that. First of all, give us the specs of Trans Rocky so people can wrap their their head around what that, that race is like. Yeah, it's six days, 120 miles, so you average 20 miles a day. You're going point to point, and they set up camp for you so you don't have to carry all your gear with you. Um, and it's at altitude, and you average about 3,000 feet per 20-miler, so it's nothing crazy. Um, but just super fun trails and, and just fun atmosphere. It's, it, I, I definitely would recommend it to people. It's, it's not cheap, but it's, uh, I, I still think the value's there and it's a, it's a super cool experience. Are you tent camping essentially in the race staging area? Yeah, they, they'll set up the camp for you and you just ever in tent camps. Nice. And then you talked about Mount Marathon. So for Mount Marathon specifically, it's it's not a marathon for the listeners who aren't aware of it. Essentially, it was at 3.5 miles. Yeah, about that. Yeah, a little over a 5K, but you just climb, is it 3,000 feet? Pretty close to 3,000, oh, yeah. And then you descend 3,000 feet down and you run, what, like six or 800 meters? Or what, how long is it on the final road? Uh, it's about 1,000, yeah, 1,000 approach up and 1,000 back down on the road. Okay, so it's a very strange, short, nasty race. Kind of choose your own line to some extent, but it's just as steep as you're going to find most anywhere. Uh, in our circle, 
who would translate over there the best? Who would you want to see do Mount Marathon in our shared OCR trail ultra circuit? Oh man, that's a, that's a good one. Um, I, I definitely would love to see Johnny Lumalina on the downhill. Um, they're definitely mm. like Taylor Turney, who is in the OCR circuit has just missed the downhill record. Um, a couple times. Uh, yeah, I don't know who, who pops to your mind there. Well, I've always wanted to see Atkins and Albin try it. Oh yeah. Although John seems to think he's not a good power hiker. <laughs> I think he'd do just fine. Are people power hiking a majority of that? The winners or is it a, a very much a running cadence most of the time? Yeah, that's my struggle with it is I, I'm a much better running cadence climber than a power hiking and no one, you know, even the, even the record holders on this are, are power hiking most, you know, it climbs, there's a segment there, there that's, yeah, it's, you know, 2,800 feet in 0.9 miles. So, you know, most of that isn't runnable. That's on your hands type, type hiking at times. Like you must actually be putting your hands on the oh, yeah. a good bit. Yeah. And it can be slippery too. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been on Mount Marathon training before where you hike up and then you slide back down the hill. I always wanted to try it just because it seemed so pain cave like that. Just blow it out. Yeah. I mean, it hurts, but nothing hurts more than turning that corner at the top and having to bomb down the steep scree Uh, when you just can't feel your legs. And it's, yeah, I mean, there's, it's, it's a dangerous race for a reason. Yeah. They're lucky if there's snowfall and you get to slide. That's what I'm saying. If you're going to, if you're going to do well, it has to be reckless abandoned down the hill to the point of like scary, scary, like actual, like you, if you fall, you, you may need to be carted off of the mountain because it's going to be bad. You're running. I have to imagine the record going down has to be like, Oh yeah. Three thirty mile yeah. pace or something ridiculous. I have to imagine. Yeah. It's, it's pretty insane when you're standing on top of the mountain and then look down and realize, Oh, people make it down this mountain in six oh. minutes. And it's just, it's huh. nuts. Um, <laughs> but yeah, lottery is open for all of March. You guys should put in and just put your name in the hat, see what happens. Oh, that, that would be fantastic. Truly. I'd be much more likely to be excited about that closer to sea level than any of these mountain other races, because at least my engine can do its thing uninhibited. Yes. It starts at sea level. I know I can't climb with any of those people, but it's the mm-hmm. type of descent mm-hmm. I would prefer out of any type of mountain running. It's pretty fun to let the uh, the road legs loose at the end, though, with with that gradual thousand. Definitely. Are there any legs left? Not really, but more than than other people usually. Well, the one time I did it, so you don't have to be you don't have to have much left to be flying by people on the road at the end. Would you say you finished there? The first time? I was 13th, I think. Which is a monster performance. So definitely hoping to improve on that. Eh. <laughs> You're apathetic about that. I see you have higher expectations. <laughs> if Matt Novakovic can win it, you can win it, right? <laughs> yeah, Matt Matt crushed that. That's, uh, I, I've got some work to do. What was your time like compared to his winning time? Oh, it was minutes slower for sure. Um yeah, I think he ran a forty six and I was like in the in the fifty one range. But you know, there are definitely slow and fast years based off the of conditions and one of the Nordic skiers, David Norris, who beat Killian's record, did in forty one, I think, which is just nuts to think about. There's levels to everything. Yeah, 
Anything else we gotta we gotta run by Chad here before we let him get on his drive? No, he's got a, go, a race to go prep for. <laughs> he's got some Powerade to purchase, Snickers bars to to <laughs> wrangle. <laughs> well, I've got to give a, a shout out to some listeners. My my sister and brother in law and friend Megan always when I get mentioned on the on the podcast, they always send me a text and are super excited. So um, we've got I. I I, I like listening, but I have some uh, some people to to let me know whenever <laughs> whenever I get name dropped on on an episode. You come up from time to time. We'll have to do it more often. <laughs> it's all been uh, for not running an OCR race in like five or six years. I don't know how long it's been. You probably get mentioned more than anybody else who hasn't been on this scene in recent times, other than maybe like a Cody Moat or somebody like that. Well, hopefully I can do something this year worth mentioning. Um, yeah, so what what are you thinking, Kirk, for your, your plans with that? When when do you turn 40? May, the two years, or two years, two months. Mm. Have you seen what Ben Bruce has been doing this year? Uh-uh, what? So he runs for NAZ Elite, and his wife, Steph Bruce, is, is still kind of elite for them, and he's kind of gone to a role of pacer. But he was in Australia at the World Cross Country Championships as a master, won the 5k at the uh masters road 5k champs there's a lot of opportunities for fast uh he's calling it his twilight fast, yeah exactly fast 40 year old dudes how fast is he running because i don't think i'm quite there i would imagine <laughs> i think it was uh 1507 for the road 5k and um i can't remember why he ran for cross to qualify to go to australia to run the the team relay for masters there there's a chance maybe Maybe. I I think that's, you know, you have that extra motivation and uh, with the big birthday, and I, I think you could go for right, it. Well, we'll have to have a discussion about that. i got to come up with something good. But right now, no plans. Well, here's what I have for you, Chad, on your way out. Denied. And we lost him. He's gone. I think Chad's phone overheated again. And that's probably the end of this thing. <laughs> Chad, thank you for joining us today. It's been a treat of a conversation. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. That was a nice time chatting. A good way to break up my drive. How's that? That was beautiful. Thank you. Chad, go choose the right shoes and win this thing tomorrow. Thanks, Chad. Thanks, Chad.